Welcome to the Achieve Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Feldman, and each month we explore the research, strategies, successes, and even the failures behind some of today's best fundraising and marketing for causes. As we explore each one of these, we'd like to invite different types of guests that will explore their own unique takes on what really works today and will leave us a little intrigued on what they're working on for the future. This podcast is supported in partnership with the Festival of Children Foundation. This month, it's Simon Moss. He's the co-founder of Global Poverty Project, whose mission is to increase the number and effectiveness of people taking action towards the end of extreme poverty. He's been a part of the campaigning, and he's really a community education expert when it comes to leading lots of individuals to take action. He consults regularly for business, government, and nonprofits on social enterprise and community building, and authored a chapter on the future of communities in the 2009 book, the future by us. We're excited that Simon Moss is joining us on this edition of the Achieve Podcast. Hi there, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Derek, fantastic to be with you. All right. So you have to tell me, give me a little bit of background on you um, before we get to Global Citizen. So how'd you, you give me the Simon story before Global Citizen? So I'm originally an Aussie. I grew up in in Melbourne on the south coast of Australia and probably like lots of uh, your listeners and people who've been to MCON conferences, I grew up in a pretty sort of standard middle-class upbringing. Um, My school was at the end of my street and my dad uh, coached the local soccer team um, and my mother helped teach reading at the school um, and they had a shop in the local shopping district that was sort of a couple of blocks over. And so for me, I always grew up with a really strong sense of of community. And as I got a little bit older, I, I started asking questions about why did some people have more than others and was it fair? And I learn about the hugely important role that that our government played, our local government or our state government, and then how important it was that citizens were involved. And so I started volunteering in in my community first, coaching sport and teaching reading and just getting involved in the local community. And then when I was uh, 17, I had the opportunity to go overseas for the the first time. And it was a hugely eye-opening experience. I realized that there was so much injustice in the world that I really felt called to, to want to do something about it. So for me, my sense of where I wanted to be valuable moved from my local community to my state, my country, and then ultimately really to, to the world. And I remember being in my first year of college and uh, like I'm sure you did uh, and many of us did, I perhaps wasn't the best organized student. So I was in the library back in the days when you had to go to libraries to actually do research the day before an assignment was due. And I had to write 1,500 words on inequality uh, and why global inequality was getting worse. And I was a little lazy, so I was rifling through all of the books, and I found this report. It was short, and it had lots of pictures. And it was by Oxfam, and it was called Rigged Rules and Double Standards. And I saw that, and I went, ooh, this looks like a good source. And I remember reading it cover to cover, sitting on a little stool in the library, going, this is crazy. Why is it that the rules that we set about how our world works and how we trade with each other are actually making people in some of the poorest countries in the world even poorer. That's not right. And so for me, the the journey along caring about and campaigning on international issues really started there on the floor of, of the Value Library at the University of Melbourne. 
Wonderful. So then Global Citizen was born from there, right? Yeah. So I got together while I was at college with a, a couple of friends and we were volunteering um, at an organization in Australia called the Oak Tree Foundation. And we were raising money to build schools in South Africa and East Timor and Cambodia and Ghana. And um, through that, we learn about advocacy where we'd never really used our voices as citizens before. But we teamed up with uh, other organizations who are part of this movement called Make Poverty History. And they told us that, uh, you know, the government gives far more than we can give ourselves. And if we can influence what the government does, then we can have a disproportionate effect. And it was through the student campaigning that we did that um, Hugh Evans, our, our co-founder at Global Citizen, and I and a third friend, Wei Su, came up with this idea of, of building a whole organization, a movement of people that were dedicated to doing this, not just as students, but all around the world and, and, and over time. And it was out of that experience that we had uh, at college and, and shortly after I'd finished grad school that, that we used to start um, what is now Global Citizen. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. So let's talk about some of the campaign work that you've been up to. Uh, talk about the early days. I mean, what kind of is there anything that's been fairly consistent in the way that you design campaigns to get people involved and in doing some of this global citizen work to where you are now? Yeah, I think that uh, a couple of things come to mind that acts in the world about how the world is getting better or worse or things should or shouldn't be done. Uh, most of us at the end of the day relate to people. And they relate to people like us. And for me, the very first campaign that we worked on as global citizen was on polio eradication, a disease that we don't really worry about in America these days, but that I remember as a kid growing up and knowing a lot about because my mother got polio when she was two years old back in the 1950s. And so I grew up with someone who could never really run and who had to walk with a bit of a hobble. And as a kid, it was a bit of a joke and it meant that I could always run away from her. But as we started campaigning on the issue, instead of saying the world has reduced polio cases by 99.9% in 25 years, we've gone from 300,000 cases to less than 1,000, all of which is true. But I could have a much more powerful impact in sharing and talking about the fact that the people who we're talking about here are people like my mother. And mm -hmm. that for us has always been a consistent through line. Very, very and personal. Part. Very personal. Yeah, exactly. And the second part of that is is what follows from that, which is that it's about you. It's about you as a citizen, that um, we don't need to wait for our governments. We don't need to wait for the powerful people over there, that they work and operate in our name. And so the very best thing we can do is say, here's what I expect of you. Here's what I ask of you. And occasionally, here's what I demand of you, because it's only when we use our voice that we start setting the terms of what's okay and what's not okay so that instead of having to wait every four years or two years to vote in an election, we can be telling that story about what we want on social media every day and the conversations we have with friends every day in the events and meetings that we show up to and in the correspondence we have with, with people who are in positions of power. And they listen to those things, not always by giving you what you want, but by <laughs> taking them into account in terms of how they make decisions. And we've seen time and again in our work that if you put a story at the center of the campaign and you give citizens a clear sense of how they can make a meaningful contribution, you can see some fantastic changes um, that leaders oftentimes otherwise wouldn't have made. So I'm sure that from where you sit, you get to see a lot of different campaigns, right? From other organizations as well. And I'm sure you're looking at those thinking, boy, I really wish they would stop doing that. Is there anything that you notice in the campaign world that it just, 
based upon your own work, has been proven ineffective? Yeah, I think two things. I think the first is I'm so over the sick of the starving African child with (laughs) flies in their eyes and pot bellies because although that is still sadly a reality for some people, it is not the reality of the vast majority of people in sub-Saharan Africa or anywhere in the world. And we know from a whole lot of research that you can make me respond emotionally today by showing something that shocks me and scares me. But then tomorrow and the day after, I'm less and less likely to do something about it. And so going with those overly simplistic images is, I think, a a real challenge. And I'm pleased to say that many of the organizations who you and I might have grown up seeing TV ads from, they don't really put those ads out anymore because they know that the very best way to engage people in this journey for, for justice and equality is to show progress, not just problems. And then I think the second thing, um, and it's particularly relevant right now, is there's a lot of energy in, in America around how people stand up for what they believe in, is doing something is not always better than doing nothing. And in particular, I think that the energy that we see directed at saying you've got to show up at this event or you've got to call your local elected representative is often a great thing to do, but it's not always because you need to know that the person you're trying to target or influence is actually going to hear it, is actually going to see it, and is actually going to have a reason to respond. Because it can be incredibly dispiriting for people to show up somewhere, to to raise their voice, and then to be completely and utterly ignored. So I think that actually the great opportunity for campaigners is to help millions of citizens around America and the world who want to make a difference to pick the things that will make the very biggest difference. And as an example, I live in New York, I live in Brooklyn, um, and right now, If there are people who are angry about, for example, the refugee ban that President Trump has recently introduced, then calling my local representative, someone who we know has already spoken out vociferously against this, isn't really going to make a difference. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't use your voice, but your voice will be much more effective trying to get your cousin who lives in Tennessee to call his senator or his congressman because they might be represented by a Republican senator who right now is going to have a lot more impact on what the president does or thinks than to an incredibly safe democratic spot. And so for us, it's making sure that you you act, but you put a little bit of thought into it first saying, what's going to be the most effective way for me to use my time and my voice? What's been one of the more, I would say, exciting campaigns that you've been working on in, the, in recent years that you kind of always put up there and hang your hat on and say, boy, that that was a really proud moment. So I'm hugely proud of uh, some work we did with a lot of other NGOs last year to get a thing called the Global Food Security Act passed through Congress. Uh, I turn on the TV and virtually every day I hear stories of gridlock and how it's impossible to ever get anything done and how no one will work with each other and Congress people are all terrible. And (laughs) I, I understand that, right? But actually, if you're willing to put in the work as so many of the organizations we work with did, and as 120,000 global citizens who took action over two years did, you can actually get some really good common sense reforms that uh, for us in, in terms of the Global Food Security Act were vital to helping America play its role without spending any extra money in making sure that the money it was spending overseas to help some of the world's most vulnerable people in emergencies get access to emergency food, and uh, farmers who are working on marginal land improve the productivity of, of their work. And to see that we were able to channel the voices of global citizens to get dozens of members of the House and members of the Senate to support this bill, both Democrat and Republican, 
from farm states and from coastal states, from big states and little states was hugely exciting because it gave me hope that even in a time when it feels like it's very difficult to get anything done, actually you can make really good things happen. And, and we'll see over the next couple of years, millions of people around the world have improved access to food. I think it's about 7 million is, is the expected number because of that. And that's so much more than I or any of the 120,000 global citizens took action could have done just by ourselves. Absolutely. Now, now you have uh, an activism model that you've been working from. I've read about it on the site. And so why don't you give us a little bit of uh, an overview of how you move people from taking action and going through a spectrum? Sure. So I think the very first thing is that um, most of us lead really busy lives. And um, I'm yet to meet a person who doesn't want to do good in the world. The question is, how can I do good with the time and uh, money that I've got? Because most of us have uh, pressures from family, from work, from school, from all of the things that are going on. And so we really recognize that we can't and don't want everyone to be out on the streets every day because, first of all, no one would ever get any work done if that was the case. And secondly, <laughs> um, that, that's not the best use of your time. So we really want to meet people where they are and recognize that all of us are reading through social media on the internet and the newspapers dozens of stories a day and so the first thing we want to start with is how do we just share some stories that you might not otherwise hear and so at global citizen we publish about 60 stories a week um, where we're talking about the the things that might not make the front page of the newspaper because they're good news and good news isn't really news or they are um, about people and places who are inspiring and making a great difference, but who you wouldn't normally get to hear about because they're not that interesting to Americans or British people. And then from there, it's this idea that if you equip people with the right sorts of stories that help you as a reader get a sense of progress being possible in the world and that my efforts can make a difference, then we're all invariably going to ask, well, what can I do? What do you want me to do next? And that's why we make sure that we regularly give people a stream of actions and we recognize that an action might be really important to me as a professional campaigner, but you sitting in Milwaukee might go, I've never even heard of that issue before. So we know we need to give people a bit of choice and we need to make sure there's a really clear and easy on-ramp for people to, to learn and to take action and to understand. And as part of that, we've teamed up with Live Nation and a whole lot of musicians to reward some of our most active people. So above and beyond just being able to take action, sign a petition, make a phone call, show up to an event. Um, we also say, look, if you can help us keep track of what you're doing, you can enter the draw to win tickets to go and see some of your favorite artists as they tour around the country. And we know that for many people, that's uh, one of the things that can help you get from going, oh, I'd like to do something to oh, I could go see Beyonce next week and I really meant to sign that petition anyway. I just sort of yeah. haven't gotten around to it because my phone rang and then I walked away. And for us, we've seen that for lots of people, that's a really great way of, of making taking action a, a habit and something that becomes part of who I am. And a, a final part of that for us is recognising that the very best way to build community and to feel like you're a part of something is to show up at things together. And so we curate and run uh, events all across the country and in particular, we're well known for a big festival that we do in Central Park in New York every September. As world leaders meet over at the UN sort of 10, 20 blocks away, we get together with 60,000 global citizens who have been rewarded for taking action all throughout the year. And the actions that they take are actually a direct contributor to the announcements that we can get from politicians who come along and speak from the stage of these festivals. And time and again, you hear politicians and prime ministers and foreign ministers and senators say, 10, 20, 30, 50,000 of you, 
called on me to ask me to do something. And in the words of the uh, the Prime Minister of Malta, he said, thank you for bullying me into doing the right thing. <laughs> and I thought that was a, uh, you know, a great story and for us a great part of the model that if you can share a day and afternoon and evening with uh, hundreds or thousands of other people who believe in the same sort of world that you do and you can together see the impact you're having when the people who make the decisions stand up in front of you and make a promise about what they're going to do because of your, your actions and your voice, we think that's a pretty powerful way to do it. And uh, excited to have done that uh, and taken that model now to, to five or six countries around the world and continuing to uh, engage lots of people here in America. Wonderful. All right. So last question before we end. Uh, what do you think campaigners are still going to have to do in about five years regarding to campaigns? I mean, what's the foundational thing that you think is still going to have to happen in five years from now? So if we look just back five years, we can see a world where diseases were more rampant, where um, far fewer kids were getting an education, where more people were dying, where there were fewer jobs and there were more people who were hungry. So the trajectory on a lot of those things is good. Um, in fact, in many ways, I'd call it great, and it's great because of the collective efforts of citizens all over the world in rich countries and poor countries in charities and businesses and, and just in their everyday lives. But as we look to the next five years, it's going to get harder and harder that, that I want a world where everyone on our planet has a decent chance of success, where everyone gets to go to school, where everyone gets the childhood vaccines they need to survive, where everyone has uh, a chance to, to succeed in life. And we're going to be able to get probably in the next five years about 90, 95% of the way there in helping kids get into school and people get clean drinking water and people not being hungry. But it's going to be those final 5%. It's a couple of hundred million people on our planet who we know could all too easily be left out. And I think that that's going to be the real challenge. And the challenge there is that we won't be able to just do the same model that uh, foreign aid and partnerships and the sorts of things that charities often talk about a lot have been hugely successful. But actually, as we get down to these very last pieces, it comes back to the very things that I started with. It comes back to talking about trade. What are the rules by which a farmer in Kenya can make a decent living? And what are the rules by which um, a citizen in India can hold their local government account to making sure that the teacher shows up at their school? And what are the rules around how when your cousin has left their country and come to a place like America or Canada or Britain to work for a few years, they can easily send money back home to help the rest of their family get a decent start in life. And for us, it's, it's those big global connected questions, these what we call systemic issues that are going to define the next five, 10 years and, and really leads us to believe that in the middle of the century, there'll be 9 billion people on the planet. And we can either build walls and try and hide from each other, or we can recognize that because of climate change, because of conflict and terrorism, because of security, because of the way that our economic and our food system works, the very best thing we can do is, is work out a way to give everyone a chance to, to survive, to thrive, and to have all of the opportunities that, that we often take for granted here in America. Here, here. Simon, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Derek, thanks very much for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us on this edition of the Achieve Podcast. We look forward to next month where we'll be helping you as marketers and fundraisers raise the public support, awareness, and adoption for the important work you do. 